It's an honor and pleasure to be here. Uh, I want to remind you about something. Uh, back in June, uh, Bob preached a sermon about the value and place of songs or life anthems uh, that shape us and can express uh, to us what life is about. And this morning, we're going to look at an important song about a topic that you were born caring about, and that's happiness. All of us want happiness, and yet it eludes many of us. C.S. Lewis helpfully observes, human history is the long and terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And so our aim this morning is to see God's vision and path for a happy life. And so let's look at Psalm 32 together. A reading from the book of Psalm chapter 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This Amen. is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you uh, for this time. And uh, you know um, uh, the deep places in our hearts, our longing uh, that we would find, uh, that our souls, are, we would find happiness and our souls would be at rest. And we pray that you would give us that vision today, that you would help us to see um, this, uh, that happiness is possible um, but that we ask that you would help us to know what that is, that you would define it for us, that you would lead us in it, and that we would see that we would find uh, that uh, security and happiness in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago at, at a church that I was serving at before coming to RUF at San Jose State, uh, a couple approached me and they were sad to report that their marriage was in trouble and that divorce, unfortunately, was on the table but they were desperate, and they wanted to try out pastoral counseling. And the husband was angry. He was verbally and unfortunately physically abusive on a couple occasions. And the wife knew exactly which buttons to push and was irrational at times, which doesn't mean that she deserved to be abused, uh, but it made the relationship extremely complicated. And so since physical abuse was in play, we pursued a temporary separation while we worked uh, on the relationship together. It was mostly a private matter. Uh, only one or two people knew, uh, and the elders of the church knew what was happening. And I was surprised to find out that in the midst of this painful separation, 
the couple posted some beautiful pictures of their family on this awesome vacation. And based on social media, you could only conclude that this family was the spitting image of happiness. They had it all. And that's the day that I realized that everything on social media is fake. It's not just the fake news, it's the fake people. Um, But it's important for us to let people know that we're happy. And if we're not happy, we'll fake it. And Psalm 32 is telling us that we can have more than the appearance of happiness. And what we'll see in this passage is happiness is real and available. Secondly, that the happy know the brokenness of sin. And thirdly, the happy find themselves lost in wonder, love, and praise. So let's take a look at that uh, and see that happiness is real and available. Verse 1 and 2, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now in verse 1 and 2, I know that the word blessed is used, and, and the Hebrew word, word there, asher, is translated into English blessed, which I think is a good translation. But I think for us, a more helpful and faithful translation based on the context of this passage is what we all understand to be happiness. Happy. Happy is the one um, who is forgiven. And as a teenager, I was growing up in the 90s in the church, and I remember hearing uh, often, you know, the Bible doesn't talk about happiness, uh, but rather it talks about joy. Or the more memorable, God doesn't care about your happiness as much as he cares about your holiness. And I did need to learn uh, as, a, as a teenager that God's, uh, God was holy and that he was in the process of making me holy. And I did need to know that Christians can have something called joy, which can be had even while in suffering. But the Bible doesn't throw happiness under the bus to teach us about holiness and joy. And Psalm 32 defines a happy person as someone who has had their sins forgiven by God. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's awfully a narrow definition of happiness. Uh, How can anyone claim to say what will make me happy? Isn't happiness subjective? One person likes skydiving, another person likes Michelin star restaurants. Some of you want a happy family. Some of you want to travel the world alone. Some are looking for money, others relationship. Happiness is subjective. And you're right about that. God made us different with different personalities and Uh, and we want different things. And that's why when God actually ventures to speak about happiness, he doesn't speak about the subjective pleasures of life. He speaks objectively about happiness. He dares to say, let me tell you about happiness, happiness that is universal to every human being. God says, he's saying, what I have to say about happiness goes to the very core of human need, and no human being created in my image is exempt from this desire for true and genuine happiness. And God tells us through the experience of uh, the Psalms author, King David, that happiness is found in being forgiven by God and reconciled to him. And I want you to think for a moment about uh, your hopes and dreams for a happy life. And my guess is that even if you really value and care about God's forgiveness, uh, forgiveness and happiness are not naturally related in your mind. It's like these two important things are in different bins. And I want you to know that uh, it didn't sound any more familiar to the original uh, hearers of this psalm. In David's time, uh, I want to read to you what happiness looked like. It looked like this. Think about Old Testament time. Happiness is a tired farmer who has just finished a long day's work in his vineyard. The sun is going down. He sits down under his many fig trees uh, surrounded by his humble house. His wife, who spent the day in the field alongside her husband, 
sits down beside him. Uh, looking into the valley below, all the fruit of the fruitful vines, they reflect that this has been a good year. The crop is thriving. They gave birth to their third child. The king of the land is a faithful servant of Yahweh, or God. And he has finally secured all the borders, guaranteeing uh, peace and safety for his people. And so what we have here is dignified work, provision, material wealth, land, family, a good government, and no enemies. That was the Old Testament's vision of happiness. And I can imagine for many, many of us, if you had that, that'd be pretty awesome too. And so when David, a man who had actually attained many of these things, says, happy or blessed is the one whose sins have been forgiven and covered, he's showing us that our goals for happiness are not bad, but they're deficient. They're simply aimed too low. In The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis writes, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy or, or lasting happiness is offered to us. We are far too easily pleased. Lewis is talking about uh, the happiness that comes from being in a reconciled relationship with God, which comes to us through God forgiving our sins. And so if we're going to trust this description of happiness, I think that you and I need a little bit more convincing Uh, Believing that true happiness is so simply attained sounds a little bit like the height of arrogance. Uh, The accusation goes like this. You know, the only reason that you think that being forgiven by God is the definition of happiness is because you really haven't seen how tough and how terrible life really is. And it's your ignorance that's your bliss. That's why you're so happy. Uh, I was working with a student, uh, an exchange student from China a few years ago. Uh, He was studying abroad, and he had become a Christian, but he was still in his infancy And he told me that he was thinking about getting a tattoo on the back of his left shoulder. And he told me that, you know, in Chinese, uh, this, his his life motto that he had lived by uh, translated into English as ignorance is bliss. And I told him, hey, you know, there might be something lost in translation. So can we meet tomorrow and talk about it um, before you get something tattooed on your body? And so we met, he said, fine. We met the next day. And I said, hey, let's talk about that tattoo that you want. And he said, I already got it. And I said, Okay. Um, and I thought, you know, maybe it's, it's in Chinese, that looks pretty cool, maybe n- no harm done. And then he pulls down his shirt to show me, and there in big block, aerial bold font letters, and I think they were in all caps, is in the English, ignorance is bliss. And he showed it to me with this huge grin on his face, uh, this huge uh, smile of pride, and I thought, um, you know what, I think I came here to stop you from possibly making a mistake, but uh, I think that tattoo actually kind of makes a little bit of sense. Um, and, and uh, maybe you felt that, you know, to be really happy, we just have to not think about life too hard. I just need to, to zone out. If I don't think about it very, if I'm not very critical, uh, you know, then I can be happy. Those seem like those are happy people. And Psalm 32 actually says the opposite. It says, it shows us that the happy actually have a contemplative and an intimate knowledge of themselves, the world, and the misery and brokenness of their sin. And so let's take a look that unusually the happy know the brokenness of sin. Take a look at verse 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. When David writes these words, it's clear that he's been broken to the core. And you can't manufacture that type of brokenness. You either experience it or you don't. It's the crushing weight of sin that drives us to run to God and ask him to forgive us. 
Now, one of my friends grew up in church. Uh, he, he's actually a pastor now, and he remembers as a teenager longing for the lives of the reformed rebel, the people who have these incredible stories of very public sins and then turning to Jesus with a dramatic experience. And my friend, he had godly parents, and he was from the, out, from the, uh, from the outside looking in, uh, pretty well behaved. Um, and as a teenager, he often wished that he had a story that he could tell. And because he didn't, he felt like a second-class Christian. Uh, and the answer to this problem is not to go and get yourself a story. If you want to know the happiness of forgiveness, it requires a sober understanding of the sin that is actually already there. David, the author of this psalm's life, actually helps show us how we can see our need for forgiveness. Uh, first, David had an intimate knowledge of what it felt like to be sinned against. In the course of David's life, you might remember that David was made an enemy of the state, a fugitive by King Saul, who was trying to kill him unjustly. And then during that time as a fugitive, his wife, which was also Saul's daughter, was taken away from him and given to another man. David suffered multiple injustices during this time in his life. And then when David became king, after he had many victories and brought peace to his kingdom, he famously sinned by taking another man's wife and then has her husband killed. And so what we see is David here saw quite dramatically the very same sins in himself that he saw in King Saul, except David was more successful than Saul at sinning. He was actually able to execute on these things. And that broke him. You know, after I graduated uh, undergrad in uh, 2007 uh, and into 2008, uh, I was affected by the, uh, the Great Recession, and uh, I couldn't find a job that was related to my major, so I just had to find some, any, any old thing. And one of the jobs I had was I worked as an operations manager at a flooring company. And my boss, who uh, happened to be Christian, or at least he called himself one, uh, was always so suspicious of the sale, his salesmen and his laborers. And he was sort of a textbook micromanager, but he was always just thinking the worst of his employees. And then one day, uh, an older salesman who had, who had been there uh, for a long time, had seen the transition of the company, um, he said, Brian, do you know why the boss is like that? And I said, I don't know. And he said, it's because when he was a salesman, a young salesman in this business, uh, he was notorious for cheating people. That's why he doesn't trust anyone, because he thinks that just like himself, everyone is trying to cheat people. And I find that to be true, that the sins that we see the most clearly in others are the very sins that we often struggle with. That's why we're so good at spotting them. It's like, ah, that's very sinful. It's because we struggle with them. Maybe it looks different, but at root, it's the same. I remember when I was in youth group, I was this really arrogant, obnoxious youth leader. And I remember telling uh, the, the younger youth kids when I was going to college uh, that they ought to live like really pure lives and don't party and you gotta be hardcore for Jesus. And when I, and you know, and I said this, you know, when I go off to, co when I go off to college, I'm not gonna be here. I'm not gonna be here for you to like take care of you spiritually. And then in college, I think I did everything that I taught others not to do the very first semester. And I was devastated. I was devastated by the blatant hypocrisy. And when you see yourself for what you truly are before God, a sinner just as ruined as the people you're most judgmental towards, it undoes you. And that's what we see here in verses 3 and 4, that pain of hypocrisy, the pain that uh, we are just as miserable and out of control as the worst evil you've seen in others. Um, but that is exactly where our journey toward God begins. If you want to be far from God, 
Keep depending on your own morality and decency. Keep comparing yourself with other people who you think you're better than. It is a recipe for unhappiness because you'll have yourself, but God won't be in your life, which, is, uh, which the Bible actually says is no life at all. But when you're finally ready to acknowledge that before God, you don't have a leg to stand on, our psalm tells us that we're on the path to happiness, and it tells us what to do next. It says, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You know, confessing your sins to God is simple, but genuine confession is actually never easy. The psalmist knows from experience that when we feel exposed uh, and our guilt and shame is revealed, we naturally want to run away from God. Take a look at verse 9. Be not like the horse or the mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. We have a need to run. At my previous church, I pastored a couple who had, by their own admission, dated for too many years. Uh, They would get jokes from other members of the congregation. So, when are you going to pop the question, or when's he going to propose? And, uh, and it didn't happen for a long time, and so people stopped talking and stopped making so many jokes, and they just sort of whispered behind their backs, like, what's taking so long? Um, and the pair were great members of our church, and they served not only uh, in the church, but also in some serious, wonderful ways in their community. And so, well, after a long time, they finally got engaged, Uh, But they also had this really long engagement because they wanted this coveted venue. And during that long, long engagement, they got pregnant. And the bride would be extremely pregnant on their wedding day. And that's not something that you can keep a secret. And so uh, the groom called his father to to tell him the news. Um, And his father had been a longtime Christian and fixture in his church. And he told his son, you better go tell the elders and they're probably going to kick you out of church. Uh, which is terrifying. Uh, The next phone call he made uh, was to his wedding officiant, which was me. I had moved uh, from my former church to to San Jose already, so he had to call me, and I found out that he was scared that I would no longer officiate his wedding. And when I assured him that I was still willing to marry them and that we began to talk about his next conversation, which was with the church, with the elders of the church, and he was afraid. He was afraid of what they would do to him. Would they strip him of all his serving opportunities? Would they kick him out of the church, as his dad said? And as he began to relay all these horrible things that were going on in his imagination, I had to stop him and tell him that nothing he was saying was rooted in reality. I knew the elders. I knew that they loved this couple um, as they would any member of their congregation. And I told him, uh, I told them, go, uh, go to the elders and tell them what's going on, and I promise you that they will do what they've been called to do, which is to shepherd you, which is to love you and care and support you through this season of life. And maybe you can identify with this groom when you think about sinning against God, the God of the universe. Your mind is preoccupied with what he will do to you. And if that's how you approach God, of course you're going to run away, run away like a wild donkey. Verse 9 tells us, that when we sin against God, we are also in danger of thinking the worst of God, that he is not a gracious, loving, and forgiving God, that he shows himself to be in the Bible. Uh, The apostle Peter is, uh, in one of his very first interactions with Jesus, uh, Jesus does something amazing for him, and Peter responds by saying, yelling at Jesus, get away from me, I'm a sinner. Well, Jesus didn't get away from Peter, and Jesus is not going to get away from you. He is moving towards you, and is drawing you in, uh, in by his love. 
So how does Jesus get people who are ashamed and broken because of their sin to stop running away from them, from him? Uh, The psalm is telling us that God's method for doing that, for drawing people to himself, is to overwhelm them by his grace. Charles Wesley uh, famously describes this overwhelming experience of grace as being lost in wonder, love, and praise. The rest of our psalm shows us that forgiveness is just a means to an end. And that end is a restored relationship with God. A relationship where we get to confess with the psalmist in verse 7 that you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And again in verse 10, uh, we get to uh, lean on the promise that steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Do you know why the forgiven are so happy? It is the forgiveness of our sins. It is in the place where God forgives us that God shows us just how deep his love goes for us. When Jesus Christ went to the cross to die for our sins and reconcile us to God through his sacrifice, he made this psalm come to fruition. You know, I'm someone who personally uh, has struggled all my life to feel the forgiveness of God. And so God has to overwhelmingly convince me. He tells me, you may not feel forgiven, but I have justified you. I have declared you forgiven. I have covered your sin through the blood of my son. Yeah, but I'm so messed up and I'll never be good enough. And God says, you'll never be good enough, but I have taken the righteousness of my son and I've credited it to your account. Yeah, but I'll never change. Not on your own, but I've given you my spirit to live within you to conform you to the image of my beloved son. But you'll never accept me. You'll never really accept me. And God says, I have adopted you into my family and called you a child of God. It is responses like these from God's word that leave me lost in wonder, love, and praise. And there are true and real promises for you all over the Bible that will leave you dumbfounded at the reality of God's love. And it's, in this over, when it's out of this overwhelming sense of God's grace that we sing praise to Jesus, to our King. And so do what uh, this psalm says. The application is there. It tells us at the very end, to sing, be glad in the Lord, and sing to him passionately. Now, I want to close our time thinking about uh, another aspect of application. I want to, uh, as, we, as we come to an, uh, a close, uh, it dawned on me as I was preparing the sermon this week that I get the last sermon at the Bascom Community Center, and uh, I was really proud about that. Um, and as Bod already relayed to you, you know, we started over there, and God blessed us, and we grew, and then we got to worship in here, and he's continuing to bless us um, until we move into our new facility and where it'll be this wonderful church building. We'll have more room for everything. And I want you to think about this, that God is doing a wonderful thing in our time to bless the South Bay. Um, And as we go and celebrate all that God has done, especially symbolized by this move, I want you to remember a time that the disciples were also just amped by what God was doing in their lives um, and, and how God was working through them. It comes from Luke 10, and it tells them, and this is not uh, to, to dissipate your celebration, he says, uh, rejoice not in this ministry success, I'm paraphrasing that, uh, but rejoice in the fact that your names are written in heaven. And I want you to think about this, that as you go into this facility, and I am confident that we as a community are going to bless the South Bay. Uh, our, our ministry and our impact will expand but I want you to, to never drink deeply in the fact that God is growing us. Drink deeply in this, the forgiveness of God. 
and drink deeply and know that this is where true and lasting happiness is. And then be committed to bringing that happiness, happiness defined by God bringing us into relationship to him through forgiveness. Uh, Be committed to spreading that happiness all throughout the South Bay. That is a thing that will sustain you and keep you a faithful and committed and loving church, taking refuge and joy in this, not necessarily in your growth, although that is awesome, but in the very fact that your names, brothers and sisters, are written in heaven. Let's go now and pray to him, our faithful God. Oh Lord God, we thank you that you leave us in this place not wondering and grasping and groping around for true and genuine happiness, but you tell us so plainly that it is found in you, being forgiven of our sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus, being brought into relationship with you. Help us to rest firmly and securely in that happiness and help us, by your grace, to influence the South Bay, to call them to you, that others might enjoy the happiness that we have in Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.